welcome to the AI and Faith podcast. We are a community of expert technologists, professionals, and faith leaders bringing the ancient wisdom of the world's major religions to the ethics of artificial intelligence. Join us on this new journey and welcome to the conversation. My name is Pablo Rusanmones, and I will be your host for today. What if you had a time machine and could transport yourself back to Palo Alto, California in 1972, just as the computer mouse was being invented and everything amazing lay ahead? That's when AI and F advisor and renowned Silicon Valley futurist Bob Johansson moved to Palo Alto where for the next 50 years, with the Institute for the Future, he helped shape the rise of the modern technology revolution through groundbreaking insights and analysis. In this podcast, Bob discusses significant turning points that informed his own advice, his future-backed method for forecasting technology developments, and his long-term engagement with the future of technology in religion. Bob is also the author or co-author of 13 books, including the best-selling Get There Early, Sensing the Future to Compete in the Present. Here's a little piece of our conversation. Uh, Bob Johansson, he's a distinguished fellow at the Institute for the Future. He began working with the IFTF in 1973 and has worked as a professional futurist for nearly 50 years. He's the author or co-author of 12 books, or more, of more than 12 books, and a frequent keynote speaker. And he recently completed a trilogy that details the types of leadership that will thrive in the next decade. And in fact, we will talk a bit about that uh, in, in this in this uh, salon. Um, the uh, new leadership literature focuses on essential practices of leadership, picking up where leaders make the future, is more skills-oriented precursor left off. In 2020, he published Full Spectrum Thinking, which focuses on the need for a future-backed mindset. His latest book, Office Shock, Creating Better Futures for Working and Living, is co-written with the IFTF colleagues Joseph Press and Christine Bullen. Bob holds a BS from the University of Illinois, which he attended on a basketball scholarship, and MDiv from uh, Crozer Theological Seminary, where Martin Luther King Jr. attended Divinity School, and a PhD in Sociology of Religion from Northwestern University. So, Bob, it's a true pleasure to have you here. Welcome uh, to this uh, uh, salon, and thanks so much for this, and thank you, everyone. So why don't we start, uh, Bob, with a bit of like kind of like an introduction of uh, why did you go into, uh, you know, these latest books? In fact, you and I were talking about this yesterday. So why why leadership, Bob? Why is it like leadership, but the topic that you decided to pick up in these latest, uh, in your latest books? Sure. Thanks, Pablo. And great to be with you all. This is a favorite group from me, and I, I've listened into a number of the salons, and I'm happy to happy to participate. I view you all as colleagues, and many of you are friends, and happy to be able to have a conversation. So I'm not going to be presenting. I'm just going to be talking in small chunks, and you should feel free to jump in. So I, I got interested in leadership. I had kind of a moment of truth. I happened to, I'm not a military guy by background, but I happened to be at the Army War College, the place where the generals go, uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I happened to be there the week before 9-11, and I was introduced with a group of CEOs and senior Deloitte partners. I was introduced to this notion of the VUCA world, a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And then, of course, 9-11 happened, and I got intrigued with what would it take to thrive as a leader in this VUCA world and as a futurist. Uh, I am believing that it's going to get increasingly VUCA, uh, not calm down. So I've spent uh, a lot of 
my last time since then trying to figure out what those skills are. Um, then I did a book on disciplines or literacies, and then I did a book on mindset. So it ended up being three books, although I hadn't planned on that. And now I'm working on a new book, which is essentially going to be to revisit those three books from the point of view of augmented intelligence. You know, how can you create an augmented leader? Um, and I'm really beginning with myself as well as the research we're doing. I'm asking the question of if I'm going to be writing serious books 10 years from now, I'm going to have to be augmented. So I've, I've okay. got GPT-4 on my screen to the left. It's my constant companion now. Um, and I'm working on the, the new book, uh, which is all around augmented leadership. And it's basically revisiting the, the best-selling book out of the trilogy, a book called Leaders Make the Future. So that's the, that's the quick start. I've since been promoted now at the War College, and I teach the new, th new three-star generals on their first week in Washington. And even though I'm not a military guy, I've ended up learning so much from them um, just because of the exposure they have that's so different from the exposure that I've had. Yeah, wonderful, Bob. Thank you. And why don't you, uh, I mean, based on all this experience and on what you're writing right now, why don't you tell us a bit more what you mean by augmented leadership and by augmented intelligence? Sure. So, um, I kind of grew up in Silicon Valley. As you mentioned, I came there in 1973. So I, I've been tracking AI and artificial intelligence for my whole career. And I've followed it through the expert systems days and followed it through uh, a number of the really amazing things that have happened with AI over the years. And I've, I've concluded that the term artificial intelligence is the worst term to describe an emerging technology that I've ever studied. Uh, it just tells a bad story that's led to all kinds of misunderstandings about what symbolic computing and what these new forms of, um, I don't know how to, how to even use the language now. I'm struggling with the language. I'm using words like coach or like advisor or um it's really a possibilities of extender. Um, the word stretch is one I keep coming back to in terms of stretching my thinking. So what I've concluded is that augmented intelligence is a better term. Um, I like generative AI. Um, I like the word generative. Um, but I'm really looking for how, how we can enhance the human ability as compared to replace. Um, it, it, I'm quite influenced in my my current thinking by Tom Malone at MIT and his book, Superminds. And the way Tom talks about it is um, the big story over the next decade is not computers replacing people, although that will happen to some extent. The big story is people and computers doing things together that have never been done before. Um, and I'm working mostly with top leaders. I'm really interested in how top leaders can be augmented in ways that have never been possible before. And I'm trying that out of myself, but more importantly, I'm working with others to try to figure out in, in large organizations how, how human intelligence can be augmented, how we can develop our clarity, but, but actually moderate our certainty. So I'm, I'm more interested in augmentation, less interested in kind of simulating the human brain, although that's really an interesting topic. It's just where I'm focused on is, is augmentation of human leadership.
And you know something, Bob, I think that you, you touched a very important point right now, which is language, right? Because whenever we give a name to something, then we kind of start yeah. making assumptions about that thing, you know? Sometimes there's there's something that we don't know what it is, but we give a name to it, and then that name conveys a series of things, right? Like it, right. it suddenly means a different thing. So, so you touched, I think, a very important point. And I wanted to ask you something regarding that. Um, which just came to my mind, because it, you know, for example, many of the of the of the tools that all these big uh, tech companies have released, like uh, I'm thinking particularly in the case of Microsoft. I think I don't know if they struggled with the name or not, but they've also come up with interesting things like Copilot, right? Like uh, you know, they came up with GitHub Copilot, and they came up with Microsoft 365, uh, the Copilot kind of like the virtual mm -hmm. assistant. Um, I don't know what you think about that particular name do you think that's a, yeah. a an appropriate name for the tools that they're releasing right now i think it's better um i was at first quite interested in and we we have done quite a lot of work with them and the um i i teach in the microsoft partners program they use my books for their rising star leaders uh, i like the term um however as i've thought about it um i actually went out and interviewed pilots and asked them what's the role of the co-pilot and one of the big roles of the co-pilot is if the pilot has a heart attack the co-pilot knows yeah. how to land the plane the current generation of generative ai can't land the plane <laughs> it can't land the plane <laughs> so so um i'm not using that term i've got now um a chatbot. I don't like that term either. Um, I've not got now a chatbot called Foresight Coach that has five of my books and it supports the work I'm doing, the one-on-one -on -one foresight coaching I'm doing with senior executives. I like foresight coach as well as anything, but the language is tricky. And here's where, you know, I'm a humble futurist and I've been doing this for 50 years. One of my big lessons is if you get your language right, it draws you toward the future. If you get your language wrong, you fight the future. And the term artificial intelligence, just a bad word. It's a bad concept. It doesn't spark the kind of conversations that need to happen. The, we're developing better language now, but getting the language right is really important. And it's very hard to study this stuff if you don't have language to talk about it. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm encouraging people to be self-aware and mindful of the limitations of language and then to begin developing alternative versions. Yeah, and, and you know, something that I think is, is, is relevant and, and very uh, important um, uh, that what you're saying is, um, you know, in, in terms of language, it many times, particularly I think with, with uh, technology, for example, um, you know, people just name things because of, you know, something that came to mind or something, but many times with technology, because of the, you know, it's released first with uh, within tech companies and with engineers and with, you know, all the people that are building it, sometimes social sciences don't get involved until, you know, a bit too late, you know, regarding <laughs> social sciences or, or arts, for example, literature or linguistics or, you know, all those different things that study language and that definitely would have, I think, a lot of, um, you know, input for uh, these different trends. Um, so do you think that perhaps, uh, you know, involving different uh, people uh, with, from different backgrounds is something that could help? Well, I know that you said you're, we're kind of like fixing it right now, but for future states, do you think that involving people with all these different backgrounds would be a better idea for 
naming these sort of technologies and, and for having the discussions that you're saying that need to happen around them? Sure. Uh, sure, it's a better idea. But we we don't really have that excuse anymore because we've had social scientists actively involved for a long time. I, I was the first PhD level social scientist to join Institute for the Future. You know, Institute for the Future was a spinoff of RAND and SRI, and it was all engineers and mathematicians and scientists. I was the first social scientist hired. Um, when I first visited Xerox Park, um, there weren't any social scientists there. It wasn't really till John Seeley Brown came that he diversified the group in terms of the sciences. And, you know, when, when JSB was there, it was about half social scientists, including anthropologists like Lucy Suchman and, and, and really a, a breadth of perspective that really wasn't the case in the early days. Microsoft's much more social scientist-oriented now than it used to be. Google is too. Um, so we don't have that excuse anymore. So yes, it is a good idea to get social scientists involved. But but you know we've been involved and we still have the problem. <laughs> so so I I think it's it's a question of how can we bring those diversities of perspectives and and then figure out what's happening study a phenomenon like like chat gpt and the emergence of that that's the fastest spreading signal i've ever studied in my career so it's a phenomenon um, but we have to figure out what what's the nature of the phenomenon and again, the language we have around intelligence and sentience and related concepts, it just isn't very accurate or very good. Yeah, no, 100%. And, you know, I remember that when ChatGPT came out, like many of my, well, myself, of course, and but also many of my friends, uh, you know, they were precisely using these sort of words that you're saying right now, like sentience and conscience and consciousness and all of that. And it was like, it's just so weird because it, we're talking about something that we really don't know what it is. And you're <laughs> still assigning those words to, to something else. And I I remember that someone at some point told me like well perhaps because we don't know what it is it's right to assign those words to it and i was like well no you 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 have no uh, i mean if if you don't know what the moon if you didn't know what the moon was made of that doesn't give you the right to tell it's made of bananas or something right like it's 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 two different things so you have to be careful i think with with, with the language certainly and uh, bob i wanted to ask you how do you um because this is kind of like what you see and how you interact with with uh, and and the different studies that you've made but like and the work that you do like as a writer or a keynote speaker like in all the work that you do how do these tools or how do you try to apply this augmented intelligence or this augmented leadership so here here's what i'm doing right now i've developed a kind of simple template um, and I'm really asking people and asking myself, how do I want to be augmented? And when I work with CIOs and I work with CEOs and C-suite people and board members, I ask them, how do you want to be augmented? I did a session yesterday at the Army War College and I asked them, how do you want to be augmented? So it's an interesting question. I, I'd be interested in how all you respond to this. And I, I use the simple template, I want help dot, dot, dot. And again, thinking future back. So I, I'm focused 10 years ahead. I'm not an expert in the present. <laughs> so I, I'm really, at some level, I'm not even that interested in the present. I'm focused 10 years ahead. And I'm not saying everybody should live like this. It, it just works for me. So for me, as a writer writing books, I want help writing first drafts. 
That's my big block. I love writing books. This is my 14th book I'm working on now. I love writing books. I love outlining. I love editing. I love talking about my books. I hate, I hate the blank page. It turns out generative AI is really good at helping you do first drafts. Now, they aren't very good. It's like having a, um, a well-read but overconfident intern sitting next to me all the time. Um, so it's not very good, but it gets me started and it gets me out of the blank page. And, and I've got a few others. I want help stretching my thinking. The word I keep coming back to is stretch. Um, it's not about answers. It's about stretching. So it's reaching new audiences. It's finding and filtering new signals. It's challenging my own assumption. So I'm trying to focus 10 years back, 10 years ahead and thinking future back. How do I want to be augmented? And, and that's where I'm focused right right now is how can I augment my myself as a writer? Um, and then I'm asking that same question of others. And there's where you kind of bypass the language problem because you're, you're asking specifically, how do you want to be augmented? But I'm also telling top leaders that if you think future back, we're all going to be augmented. Uh, if you're not augmented, you're going to be out of the game. So this is a really big deal. How do you want to be augmented? And then you begin prototyping how you get from here to there. Yeah, and, and you know, I think that uh, this is very interesting, uh, Bob, in, in, in how we're going to do it, because as you're saying, right, like everyone's going to be augmented, and if you don't do it, it's kind of like you're going to be left behind. But um, it's very interesting, right, because some, uh, I mean, there are so many different ways to be augmented, um, that's what I'm saying, and, and, and you know, some people say that uh, part of the future will involve, you know, having chips in the brain or, you know, all those things, and I know very many people, including myself, <laughs> who would not like to have those sort of things inside my body, right? And um, and I'm not saying that's that's what's going to happen or anything. I have no idea. But I think that the question is very relevant in itself. Like, how do you want this to happen? Because one of the things that um, I, I sometimes discuss with people is like, by the way, do you uh, like it's uh, technology is certainly a trend, but it's also something that it's also also something that we have a decision, right? Like we have a decision on how we want things to be. And I wanted to ask you on this and the different questions that you've uh, that you've asked all these people. Like when you ask them, how do you want to be augmented? What are like the common answers that you get? Like, is it uh, around efficiency? Is it around being more accurate? Is it is it around answers around like you know saving time or like what are the sort of answers? How do people do you think want to be augmented? Um, you know, so I'm dealing with top leaders. Um, yeah. You know, so I think I think the the kind of automation or kind of the, those routine answers are routine. <laughs> uh, they're sort of the obvious things to get rid of the things you don't like to do. Um, what I'm more interested in is helping you do the things that you want to do, but don't know quite how to do, helping you stretch your mind, essentially. And it comes back, one of the principles in my work about leadership and this actually tracks back all the way to my experience in divinity school but one of my key ideas here about leadership is that leaders need to be very clear about where they want to go but very flexible about how you get there so it's all in leadership it's a search for clarity but you can't be certain 
So there's this inherent intention and leadership, a dilemma where you want to be very clear about direction. And the military is actually ahead of us. That surprises me. I thought they were still command and control, where what they talk about is commander's intent or mission command or flexive command is my favorite, where you're continuously evaluating who's in the best position to make which decision at what time. Flexive command. I don't like commander's intent, so I don't use that because I'm working mostly in business and nonprofits. So what I I call that clarity, you know, clarity. And in divinity school, I I went to the school as you mentioned, the divinity school that Martin Luther King went to, and I was there when Dr. King was killed, and I became part of this program to recreate the intellectual influences he was under. And the big takeaway I had was that Dr. King's focus was on social justice, not just about civil rights. So there was great tension. And I'm just reading the new bio that came out about Dr. King, uh, you know, King, a life. Uh, And there's so much tension in his community, especially at the end of his life, people telling him, no, no, you shouldn't be interested in poverty. You shouldn't be opposed to the Vietnam War. You shouldn't be involved in the first Earth Day. You should just focus on civil rights. And he said, no, 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 the clarity, the clarity is social justice. And to me, that's the place where we want to be augmented. We want help in developing our clarity, help in developing our clarity, and also help in realizing, realizing that we can't be certain. So we need clarity, we can't be certain. So in in the VUCA world, and in how I'm using that now in my work with leaders, is I've flipped it. And I've said, okay, if you think future back about the VUCA world, uh, yes, it's threatening. But if you think future back, vision vision will counter volatility. So vision is going to get disproportionately rewarded over the next decade, I think. Understanding will counter uncertainty. This is a time to be listening to each other, you know, not shouting at each other. And I'm really concerned about that polarity, that kind of rise in the temptations of certainty. Clarity Clarity will counter complexity. Uh, And to me, that's the big one. We want to seek out leaders who are clear, but not certain. And, you know, I'm I'm a futurist. I don't talk about politics, but I get the new three stars on their first week in Washington. And I can't help but notice and empathize them with them because they see politicians who are certain, but often not clear. That's really dangerous in the VUCA world. And then finally, agility will counter ambiguity that we're we're in a world now where we all have to be essentially corporate athletes. We've got to be physically, mentally, and even spiritually grounded. Now, I never got ordained, even though I have the academic credential to do that, because I'm a student of world religion. So I don't want to be an advocate of any single religion. But I'm really interested in that concept of faith. And and here's kind of the big idea I want to share with you. But you know, you're such a well-read and, and amazing group that I'm sure you're all aware of this already. To me, clarity is a lot like faith. It's a lot like faith. Uh, Faith includes questions. You know, faith kind of embraces the future. It's inherently future-oriented. Belief, and especially extreme belief, that's certainty. That's certainty. So what we're running into, and I think what's obvious if you think future back, is that we need clarity. We can't have certainty. And yet that's often what we're stuck in is these kind of debates, the awful polarities of of certainty that we get we get brought into. And I was 
as I was preparing for this, I was reminded, I read Paul Tillich, the theologian, when I was in divinity school. And his his wonderful takeaway line to me is the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. And, you know, Bob, you just touched on so so many uh, amazing points, uh, and, and, and certainly all of them uh, in, uh, very, very uh, interesting and, and, and worth discussing. Because, yes, I was precisely the next question was that, well, part of stretching obviously involves questions, involves doubts. Mm. Is where am I going to get? Like, how am I going to do this? Where will I be? You know, if I stretch my mind, stretch my body, like, where, where am I going to be next? And where are we going to be next? Something that I wanted to ask you about right now, based on what you just said, is I I certainly uh, understand this the difference between the need for clarity but the impossibility of of, of certainty, right? However, um, you know, I don't know. Like, there's a reason I believe that po- wh- why politicians are very certain about things. Certainty sells, you know. It's, <laughs> certainty sells. Doubt, uh, yeah. not so much, right? Um, so, but it's it's interesting. So. I wanted to ask you, like, based on, on, on this experience that you have, how, how do you propose that we approach, uh, you know, taking into consideration this augmented intelligence and augmented leadership that you've talked about? How do you propose we approach this, uh, uh, the need to identify these two, like the need for clarity mm-hmm. but the impossibility of certainty? How do you think we should approach that problem? Again, taking into consideration this idea that, well, politicians do it for a reason. It, it just, you know, it, it wins them votes. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right. Certainty does sell, particularly for people who can't accept the complexity of the VUCA world. I mean, there's always going to be politicians or religious leaders or others who are going to say, oh, I've got the answer. I've got all you have to do is this. Um, so you you have to face up to that. Clarity sells, too, if you can get the right story. If you can get the right story, and I think that's the delicate art of leadership is to find the right story of clarity. And it's interesting, during the awful stages of the Afghanistan war, uh, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, funded a fascinating project to try to figure out why the Taliban stories were actually working better than the American stories in Afghanistan. So they they brought in master storytellers who told stories to people people while their brains were being scanned. And what they concluded, what they concluded was our brains are wired for stories. And if they don't hear stories, they make them up. They make them up. Now, I learned that in divinity school. (laughs) And probably you all learned it in your graduate work, too. That's really not new that our brains are wired for stories. What's new is that we now have neuroscience data to document it. So we've got to figure out what's the right story. And I think we we learn those compelling stories by thinking future back. So, for example, I think the most compelling stories of change over the next decade have to have something to do with climate disruption. You know, because, you know, nobody wins on a dead planet, as David Corton, the author, says. So, you know, we're facing up to that over the next decade is Climate disruption is upon us in ways that's overwhelming. The kids get that. So the stories have to speak to the what we call the true digital natives, 27 or less in 2023. And what we're really interested in, the the XR natives, the cross-reality natives who are 17 or less in 2023. So everything we do now is cross-generational. And the stories have to come from the kids. The stories have to come from the games, actually. And, And many of those games are retelling the hero myth, are 
drawing out kind of the essence of um, profound kind of mythic truth. Uh, and I think that's what we have to look for to um, kind of avoid the temptations of certainty, avoid the temptations of those simplistic stories. But we do have to face up to the fact that we we are all motivated by clarity stories. And if you link this just finally to the purpose, um, I think purpose is the practical bridge here. And it was really interesting during the COVID shutdowns, the Blue Zones Project released a study. And Blue Zones is the the effort that National Geographic first funded to find the people who lived the longest, happiest, healthiest lives, but died the quickest. Um, studied those people all around the world. Uh, Dan Butner was the journalist who wrote that stuff. And now um, they have communities in various parts of the U.S. But the big lesson out of that during COVID was purpose-driven people are happier, they're healthier, and they live up to seven years longer. Purpose-driven people who work for purpose-driven companies are, or organizations are happier, healthier, they live up to 14 years longer, and the organizations do better. You know, so we, we, purpose is the practical bridge there, uh, the practical bridge to clarity, um, the practical bridge to providing a sense of meaning and and grounding. So sorry, that's a lot at, at once. <laughs> no, no, that's perfectly fine. But, you, you know, you left me thinking about, uh, you know, what you were saying about the stories in, in children, because uh, funny enough, we're currently, um, I'm currently helping some researchers from Humboldt University in Berlin do studies on, on, on how kids take the stories from climate change, you nice. know, because many of the stories yeah. that we're telling them is like the world is doomed and it's your and, it, and you're going to have to fix it. And it's like, well, great, but I wasn't here 30 years ago when you had the opportunity <laughs> yeah. to, you know, fix it and yeah. you didn't do it. So why is it my responsibility? So what I wanted to ask you, like, based on that, because, you know, I agree with you, Kate, the, the stories needs, need, need to come from, from them. But many times we actually just tell the stories to them and it's like, accept this story. This is a yeah. story that, you know, yeah. that will happen. And, you know, their, their minds uh, just, uh, you know, the, they don't develop the, the way they, they probably should. So so I wanted to ask you, like, I, I get that the stories, as you're saying, and I agree that the stories should come from them. But in the end, people are going to keep telling stories to them. They're going to keep telling stories to their children about technology, about climate change, about many other things. So uh, in the next decade, now, based also on what you said regarding the uh, uh, that the, this climate disruption is going to be a, a, a big one for sure. Like, what are the stories that you think we should be telling people? Like, um, and again, assuming that, of course, they, it should come from them, but realizing that other people are just going to tell them those stories. How do you think that those stories, how should we convey those stories about what's coming, about the technology that's coming or about the, the climate disruption that's coming? I think the stories need to be told immersively. And it's got to be more gameful. Um, my colleague, Jane McGonigal, who's one of the world's leading game designers, she defines a game as emotionally laden attention, emotionally laden attention. And of course, the digital interfaces are so much better. And the challenge, I think, as we're trying to reach kids is the, core, the, the stories need to be compelling and they need to be embedded in in, in gameful environments. We we worked more than a decade ago now with UPS on a project on the UPS driver of the future. And what we found as we look future back, and this was more than a decade ago, um, about 12 years ago, that 
the way the UPS driver of the future will learn is through games. They won't sit in classrooms. They'll learn through games. So UPS redesigned how they teach UPS drivers. And they're now taught through the intergrad learning centers that are basically gaming parlors, uh, little uh, cities. Uh, there's a dozen of them around the world. Uh, and it's all taught through gaming. Uh, it's increasingly now virtual reality, but it's physical immersive learning as well. So I think the the medium through which you'll reach young people is going to be increasingly gameful and increasingly digital, though not necessarily not exclusively that. I don't I don't think face to face goes away in this world. It's just that it's going to be used more mindfully for the things that in person are better at things like orientation, trust building, renewal, early stage creativity, culture building. That's in our current book, Office Shock. Uh, so offices don't go away in this world. But increasingly, particularly with the kids, there's going to be a gameful interface for the stories. And if you think about it, um, a good story um, is a kind of a game and a video game is a kind of story it's just that in a good video game you're in the story you get to be you get to be in the story not just read the story yeah, certainly. My, my, I can tell you that my favorite video games are story-based uh, video games, like a, there are a few called Life is Strange, for example, which I love. But anyway, it just made me, you know, think of that. Uh, but, you know, but very interestingly, uh, Bob, on, on what you're saying is uh, the, these different stories that, um, because, you know, gamif like uh, gamifying or, or putting games into all this, it all certainly has a, a, a great appeal. But I wanted to ask you about the balance between, because you touched a bit on that point saying well you know face to face doesn't go away like offices don't don't, don't go away um but what's the right balance between the game and not the game because um, i don't know I, it's just something that i'm thinking right now but isn't there perhaps i'm i'm wrong as i said i'm just thinking it right now but is there not a risk that people will um i mean some people to give you an example, some some people use money as a game. You know, for for some sure. people, money is just a game, but it has very real implications for other people. You know, if you have tons of it, perhaps not that many implications for you, but it has a lot of implications for so many others. So, sure. how can you hit the right balance between adding all these uh, game uh, features, if you will, uh, for telling the stories, and at the same time, letting people know, like. You know what you do out there actually has implications for other people. Some of some of them you know, some of them you never you, you've never you will never met even you know throughout yeah. the world. But it has really implications sure. for them. Sure, there's a big risk here, um, mm -hmm. and unfortunately, um, it's easier to study the negative side of it, the downside of video gaming, for example, it's easier to study the negative than it is the positive. Um, my takeaway, and here language is important, um, we don't use the word gamification because it sounds like it's basically doing what we're already doing, but doing it through a game. What we use is the word gameful engagement gameful engagement. So there's always going to be enga engagement. It's just going to be more gameful, more story-like, more involving in that, in that sense. So I'm really optimistic about young people if, if they have hope. 
if they have hope. Um, if they don't have hope, then they run the risk of, you know, being addicted to gaming, um, being depressed, being um, suicidal, potentially being candidates to join extreme religious groups. Um, so if they don't have hope, we're in big trouble. Uh, and we are leaving them a lot of really bad stuff to deal with, not around, not just around climate, but around social justice and other rich, poor gap, other themes that are looming. Uh, so we're, there's a real challenge there. But I think the balance, to me, I'm hopeful about that balance. And there's lots of uh, positives that are coming on it. But it's really, uh, uh, it really is a balance issue. And the stakes are up you know, the stakes are up. Yeah, no, certainly. And and uh, before we uh, uh, finish, Bob, because I know that the audience has tons of questions or tons of questions in the chat, but I don't want, don't want to uh, leave before asking you, like, um, some of the forecasts that you have for the next year, you say that you're, um, you know, uh, as you yourself said uh, a bit earlier, like, uh, you're not an expert on the present, but rather <laughs> on, on what's coming, right? So, what are some of the forecasts that you see? I mean, I know you've talked about some of them for the uh, some of those uh, during our conversation here, but what are some that you say, okay, this is something that you we should look into. This is something that's going to um, be developing in the next decade. What are your forecasts for the next uh, for the next year or the next decade? So usually in the front of every one of my books, I've got kind of a big overview of, you know, what you might think of as mega trends. And, and again, um, language is important. We, we define a trend as a pattern of change you can extrapolate from with confidence. And a disruption is a break a break in the pattern of change. So for example, demography is a trend, um, but the XR natives, the 17 or less, they're a break. They're a break and a disruption essentially. Um, so, you know, having having said that, the the big kind of looming, looming future forces, uh, let me call them the big kind of looming future forces I'm most concerned about right now are climate disruption, uh, the rich poor gap, and, cyber terrorism, um, where a very small group of people can have a really awful big impact. So the rich poor gap, I think, is closely tied to social justice. So um, those are kind of the big looming factors that are always there in all of our forecasts. I'm really hopeful about augmented intelligence and about augmented leadership. And that's why I'm investing so much of my time in that area right now to study not only what are the skills and the literacies and the mindset, but how can we augment human intelligence? And it kind of boils down to the question of what can humans do best? What can computers do best? And then the bottom line question for me right now is how do you want to be augmented? And and I, I I think all of us should be asking that question. How do we want to be augmented? And we should be prototyping it. The the really neat thing about ChatGPT4 and the, all the various other similar similar function platforms that I'm sure many of you are, are trying, um, the big thing about this is you can actually try them out in practical ways and in scalable ways, in ways that certainly weren't possible until really just the last year or so that, we, that I could do something like what I'm doing right now in my writing. I couldn't have done that even, even a few months ago in the way that I'm doing it now. 
Certainly, certainly, Bob. And, and I think that's a, that's a magnificent uh, uh, reflection. Thank you so, so much. Thank you once again, Bob. It's, it's a true honor to have you here. And uh, well, see you soon. Thanks so much. Just listen to the Air and Fate Salon recording from October 2023. Stay tuned to listen to more salon recordings and interviews with experts from around the world. In the meantime, follow and rate our new podcast on your favorite podcast platform and share with your friends. Don't forget to follow us on our social media as well. We are on LinkedIn and X, formerly Twitter. Thank you for joining us today. 